Hello, and welcome to Cabbages and Kings, the podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse, and we are reconvening the Cabbages and Kings book club with Megan of the blog From Couch to Moon and Maureen Speller, an editor at Strange Horizons, among other projects uh, you might expect, given that we read last year's Clark Award shortlist and that Megan and Maureen are both on this year's Shadow Clark jury, which is a project that I'd heart- heartily recommend that we'd be talking about Clark Awards. But but no, instead we have each brought one book selected with no specific thing, although I think all vaguely qualify as, as speculative fiction and some are definitely experimental. So in no particular order, we're going to discuss Watership Down by Richard Adams, Sun Young Shin's Unbearable Splendor, and The Stone Boatman by Sarah Tolmy. And we will start with The Stone Boatman, which, Maureen, you brought to us. So perhaps you can introduce it and tell folks what it is and, and why you brought this book this book to us. I read this book for a review for Strange Horizons originally um, when it first came out. And I was just completely blown away by it, um, which is pretty rare for me. It's starts as it feels like an allegorical fantasy of some sort to begin with, although there's a a little framing device I'll come back to in a moment. And it's initially set in a city that's very much bound by ceremony. It's everything has a ritual attached to it. And it's not always clear um, what this ritual means, but this is what's been done. And uh, so they continue to follow it. And there comes a point where the new ruler of the city begins to understand the purpose of ritual and becomes uh, very interested in recording the ritual. And the one, the thing that sets him off on this is his naming or unnaming ceremony, which at one point in the city cycle, he's stripped of his name and then he spends several days almost you know, without an identity. His identity is taken up by his appointed double. And in this instance, his appointed double actually is his double. And both of them bear a very strong resemblance to the... Um, the actual statues, the stone boatmen that stand in the harbour of the city. And once the ceremony is over, the two of them maintain a, a friendship and they begin to figure out what these um, statues might mean. And they come to understand them as an indication that there, there's something out there. And uh, over a couple of generations, um, their families can join, begin to sort of piece together the story. And they find themselves effectively travelling back through the history of the place where they live. And they start to reclaim lost information, but this isn't just a standard science fiction novel in which you know lost information is suddenly conveniently discovered. It, it comes with a, an immense amount of philosophical, uh, I don't want to use the word baggage, but it's, it's an inquiry about the nature of identity um, and the nature of knowledge and what we do with it. And this actually takes us back to that framing device I mentioned, because, spoiler alert, it is revealed that at some point in the deep past, their ancestors, the final king, um, has actually effectively uploaded himself into the consciousness of birds. And um, in an effort to, as he sees, uh, uh, subvert or you know, head off uh, an impending disaster, and is actually waiting for a period in time when people are much more careful about what they do with knowledge and with information because he's, he feels that they've been on the brink of the disaster and this is the only way he can actually avert it. Having said that, that's the simple version, but it's so much more complicated than that. Now, I've read the novel four or five times now and I've you know, been re-glancing through it again uh, prior to this podcast 
and there's just so much in it. It's unbelievable. I'm noticing things this time I, I hadn't spotted before, and it's it's just endlessly fascinating. I agree. I was actually really glad that Maureen brought this book up because I there's I've gotten to a point where I feel like any sort of fantasy is just exhausting to me, and I can't enjoy it. And this was the first thing that felt like you know a different kind of world that felt intriguing. And I don't know, I just kept turning the pages. Just a really cool, neat book. I know Maureen has written about this on Strange Horizons. She did some comparisons with Mervyn Peak and Gormenghast. And I felt like it was it was it wasn't that kind of book. It, it was that kind of novel where you are diving into a completely different world. And yet, everything is just so strange and different, and it doesn't feel contrived like a typical fantasy-type novel would nowadays. I was just really, really pleased with it. I found it fascinating. Interesting. I'm particularly interested that you say it didn't feel contrived. Mm -hmm. There were parts of this book that I loved, and in particular, the opening. And I felt as though in many ways it was at its strongest when we were getting things almost felt kind of stylized mm -hmm. and and there were phrases of portentous significance and often i feel like when i'm when i'm reading portentous significance or gnomic utterances that that the the author can't quite bear them out and in this case most of the time i felt the book really did that the rituals that surrounded those phrasings and the ways in which those rituals were in people's lives, sometimes it felt a bit weighty without there being, without there being much, much behind it. But a lot of times it felt as though the, the, the ways that the people were living in the city or in the cities really kind of supported the, the attempts to articulate meaning. I also remember being really struck that there were just I was delighted at ways that families lived together and ways that kids played out in these books. And that on the one mm -hmm. hand, there, there were kind of rituals and the great production of launching the first ship and of people going and various cities meeting each other. And, and again, all of that feeling a little bit, a little bit stylized and a little bit, this is very significant. But on the other hand, just kids running around and the prince going to the fisher folk and learning about the fisher folk and kind of seeing in them the same sorts of weight and significance and importance that there was in in the city's great ritual it seems to me actually that something that happens all the way through the novel there's a sort of underlying theme of opening up it's it's as though all the different groups are sort of living in their they're looking inward and then suddenly you know, there's this sort of one precipitating moment in, in the first city which prompts you know Neryl to begin to look outwards and this unfolds itself to the next generation to uh, Azul's son Maha and then gradually the whole of this this world is it opens up because ideas are starting to flow you know it's as though idea has um, overstepped the bounds of ritual there comes a point where ritual becomes devoid of meaning. And it's in as though in Neryl's vision, the ritual has been reinvested with meaning. And because it's been reinvested with meaning, it then has a power in the world. And what it's it's intended to do, the sort of the effects of this ripple out and you know, through the idea of the voyage, 
and the movement onto the next city. And then it becomes a sort of catalyst there for another journey and so on and so forth. And gradually it ripples back the other way. And this constant process of opening out, which I think actually from about halfway through, once we actually meet the Rose Poet and her daughter, it's as though having opened out to reach the point where both the Rose Poet and Fiorel then can become sort of potent as, as seers and bring the ideas of Malachi, you know, contained by Malachi, to people in a, in a different form. But it's, it's, it's actually, I think, very much a, a novel of, um, that well-worn cliche of, of two halves. There, there are two very distinct go- things going on, but um, you, know, you need the one in order to have the other. And you can't have, you, know, you, you can have them separately, but somehow put together. That they make a lot more sense. I mean, it's like a, you know, it's like a diptych. Once you unfold, you know, the, sort of the two parts of the picture, they make more sense together, even though each could exist in its own right. But there's, there's, there'd be something slightly partial about it. Which makes it a pretty significant book in this age of Brexit. <laughs> um, <laughs> consider, and I like how you use that word about rippling out and rippling back toward one another. You know, just the different peoples becoming aware of one another and how their awareness of one another ripples across their own cultures. I'm getting the sense that Joan is not the biggest fan of this novel. I... And I can see mm-hmm. I can see why some people wouldn't enjoy it as much because it's it I can see where you're saying it's um, you know, there's just a lot of meaning embedded to it, a lot of significance. There's not any action. There's not any drama really. It's it's a very gentle type of novel, and it is more based on this profoundness. I, I love that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, it's, there's not much in the way of plot. I mean, it's pretty basic and simple, and that plot is really just meant to be a simple architecture for whatever the author is thinking. And so much of that is you know, imbued with a sense of meaning about culture and who we are and how we come to develop our traditions and what they mean, uh, what they mean isolated from one another and then what they mean compared to other traditions. I don't know. I just really thought it was a neat book. I think it fits right in the tradition of Gormenghast and Viriconium and all those types of kind of dreamlike, surreal, fantastic novels um, and I had no idea it even existed until Maureen brought it up. And I, I will say I am thrilled. I, I would never have have known about it or or have read it without without Maureen you bringing it up. And I'm really thrilled that I did read it because definitely some of my problem with it is that it is a book that doesn't follow many of the conventions that I'm used to, and that's just. It made me slow down, and it challenged me a bit. There's a passage, Fiorel is reflecting on, I think she has gone back to the first city, and she is talking about the slowness of the city. Everything is so slow here, in your court, in the market, even among the fisher folk, although it's less noticeable there. And she says of the bird priests, he wanted to change the way they lived to prevent what he feared might follow. And it's true in the city of birds now, most people live very simply more simply than here. Perhaps the ancestors here came to the same conclusions. They chose not to break the rule of the prince from his palace, but to slow it down, to stop or change whatever it was they saw coming. Maybe their lives were going forward too fast, which felt both like a theme of this 
our particular historical moment and also a theme of the book. Mm. And um, Megan, you're right. I'm a little ambivalent, but a lot of that I think is my own my own preconceptions. It is a it is an unconventional novel, that's for sure. Mm. I find her a very unconventional writer, actually. Um, generally, uh, in, in a good way. I've I've read all of her fiction. I haven't read her poetry yet, but no two pieces of her fiction that I've read are the same. No Food, which is a collection of short stories, although I I tend to read it as a sort of an interlinked novel, is a completely wonderful uh, piece of work. I almost suggested that, actually, but I thought, no, let's start at the beginning. And No Food is is a series of interlinked stories about a world in which something has happened. We never really find out, but it's in some areas, food has become very difficult to obtain or sort of you know, luxury items. At the same time, a lot of people are having a sort of complete digestive system replacement. So food has become an abstract thing to them anyway. This is only happening in certain places in the world. Um, in other places, people still actually sort of you know, eat food normally. And there's all these layered ideas about food keep resurfacing. Uh, you know, f- food as a cultural artifact, food as a means of sustenance. It's absolutely wonderful in the same way and yet completely different to The Stone Boatman. I think one of the things I actually really like about Sarah Tolmy is that, you know, as you, you picked up that passage, Jonah, about um, slowness, I think there's something about the way her, her fiction requires us to slow down and read, whereas so much fiction to me now feels um, very disposable. You know, it's, it's, it's product. I, I suppose she has the luxury of being able to back off from that and do things her own way. She, she's a she's an academic as well, so she's teaching. So it's you know it's a part of what she does, but it's not all of what she does. And so I'm guessing that it affords her the the you know the ability to stand back and actually sort of write what she wants in the way she wants, at the speed she wants, and that comes through into the you know the way we're encouraged to read. Um, you know, I, I like the idea of being almost obliged to slow down in my reading. And also, I think because of it's there's so much going on in all her work, it's really lovely to be in a situation of effectively being invited to read the novel again and finding so much in it. There really is. We all reread, but sometimes we reread for familiarity, whereas I feel with The Stone Boatman, I'm, I'm reading for difference and there's there's always something else to notice and think about and you know, meditate on so in a way it's like reading becomes i suppose a kind of priestly action you know you know how there's so much paying attention to everything throughout the novel you know, everybody's observing um and sort of you know looking at what's going on and i think a book like this invites us to look at the ways in which we read as well and i find that very valuable yeah it's a meditative novel that's how I saw it. I mean, I could literally feel my spine unwinding while reading it. It is one of those books that you just kind of have to let it take over. And that's what I just enjoyed it so much. Mm-hmm. Well, shall we move to Unbearable Splendor, which I think I would describe as both unconventional and one that I had to let take over? <laughs> and maybe... Uh, Megan, you can you can tell us about this one since you introduced it. Yes, you know I I ran into this novel. I I oh, I can't even remember where I found it on some sort of link with I think LitHub, and I think it was at Vice actually. I can't believe that, but it was from a list of top 
immigrant authors with new releases coming out this year, something like that. And immediately that summary launched into Cyborgs, Borges, Antigone, and it just sounded like the neatest thing ever. And I just couldn't wait to pick it up. So that was one of the first things I read this year. It is a very unconventional type book. It is kind of what I think some people would call prose poetry. It can be viewed as a collection of things. And it starts with the author's kind of memoir, her beginnings as an adopted child who has been raised in a white, I want to say Canadian household. It might be a white American household. Then it goes on into an essay about cyborgs. And she moves into a re-envisioning of the Antigone myth, a reworking of the labyrinth, and just a whole lot of things going on. And I think on the surface, it might look like, oh, this author is just also stylistic, um, just experimenting with different styles and cramming them all between the covers of a book so they can be sold as a novel. I see it more like her retelling her story through different modes and pushing the limits of what fiction is and what it can be and really highlighting while at the same time distracting us from how much of an author can be put into a fiction story and how much a fiction story can be telling the truth and how it's all embedded into one another. I just found it fascinating. And I loved it so much. And of course, I think a lot of the question around this one is, is this fiction? Is this nonfiction? Is this speculative fiction? I think it's just everything and wonderful. It is. Uh, I, you will not be at all surprised to hear, I struggled with this one at first. And, and, and I was, I was fighting for unity of plot and what is going on here. And fortunately, this book is so resistant to that that by about the, the the second or third sort of section, I was able to just enjoy enjoy the prose, enjoy the imagery. I read it fairly quickly, which meant that there were times that I could say, "Oh yes, we are again thinking about computers and ways humanity and computers are embedded together, both because." sort of computers that track vital statistics are sort of things that give us all meaning and also because we are getting close to artificial intelligence and the singularity or at least we are you know people are thinking about that and thinking about conversational computers and so there are all sorts of different ways that computers and humanity intersect and again the 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 author who is at times a narrator and protagonist is adopted and so her vital statistics become very important in terms of proving and finding her identity and by the end i i was just i loved it it was challenging it would be hard for me to describe but it was it was a really enjoyable reading experience as as i was reading it yes um i'm really grateful to megan for actually drawing this to my attention because i i'd have missed it completely otherwise and i'm so glad i've read this I've read it a couple of times. Um, and I think, again, it's something I'm going to read a lot more uh, over the next few years. Like you, Jonah, I struggled a little at the beginning. So I was very interested to discover how much, on the one hand, I sort of you know, think of myself as an innovative reader. And on the other hand, I find myself sort of panicking the moment I'm presented with something that isn't in a sort of conventional novel or short story form. And 
and I'm very ashamed of myself when I panic like that. But it's that sense of, um, as you said, you know, once you sort of immerse yourself in it and just let the words flow over you, that's okay. You can do that. And when you actually do sort of just surrender to the words, to all the sort of structures, you know, the different things happening on the page, you sort of at great liberty all of a sudden to take parts of the story, you know, sort of pull them together, follow the particular threads that interest you, and then come back and, uh, you know, look at it again in a different way in, in a subsequent reading. I, I had a little note to myself, this, are these poems or assemblages of words and images and infographics? And I thought... It, does it actually matter? You know, this is, <laughs> I don't think it does. You know, this is kind of the ultimate expression of the collapsing of boundaries of genre and, and form you know, into yes. it's, it's a story. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It's what it contains that's important. And it seems to me that there are stories that cannot be contained within the, the, the form of a novel. You know, they have to be told in different ways. I just, I love the fact there were so many different things happening on the page. In some ways, it's laid out. It looks like it might be poetry, and then you get little diagrams. And when you look at it, you suddenly begin to realise that, you know, speaking as a copy editor, I'm looking at this and noticing the way that there is different shades of colour in the text, and you know, the uses of italics and emboldening and asterisks, all sorts of things going on that I wouldn't normally, you know, sort of think about. I find that I find that absolutely wonderful. But there was so much that was in this that I found interesting, you know, in terms of trying to explore identity um, and different kinds of identity, you know, sort of what one's personal identity, you know, sort of the engagement with the future, how we will be in the future. Is the idea of identity tied into mathematical figures and graphs, you know, and sort of relationships between science and experience, um, all sorts of things. The story that really uh, stood out the first in my first reading was the, the other Asterion, which is the, the Minotaur story. I thought that was amazing. I'd never seen the story of sort of, you know, Ariadne and the Minotaur uh, and the Labyrinth told in quite that way before. I found this sort of constant reaching for classical illusions really interesting. Mm -hmm. And the way they were mm -hmm. sort of, you know, represented in a, in a, in a, in a new uh, sort of, I suppose, you know, kind of science fictional context. If indeed this is science fiction, speculative fiction, and um, if it isn't, I don't care. It is just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, you know, it was sort of this constant sort of you know pinging of my imagination and, and setting up you know sort of new little connections. I thought that was absolutely wonderful. I also love the Blade Runner poem too. Particularly mm -hmm. like the Blade Runner poem, but you know, I feel I could read it again tomorrow, and I'd sort of you know be rhapsodising about a completely different section of it. It's absolutely brilliant. I agree. This is definitely something I, to me, this is science fiction. This is speculative fiction. This is what it should be. Um, I don't want to see anything else that's not like this. This should win the Hugo Award, the Clark Award. I just think she's brilliant. And especially that Minotaur section. I mean, that really showcased her talent as a writer. Yes. Of course, the whole thing, thing did from beginning to end. But my gosh, she just danced circles around my head. I just think she's incredible, and I can't wait to see what else she does. But gosh, I thought this was an exciting, exciting piece of whatever it is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm amused at the fact that we're all, you know, on the one hand, yes, yes, we want to break away from structure, and it pulls us back all the time. It always ending up, well, I wonder what this is, and sort of yeah, half is thinking. I need to define this. And the other half is thinking, no, no, I don't need to do this. You know, it needs to just exist as it is. And I just need to read it and, and be amazed by it. 
sorry, I, I'm just endlessly entertained by that kind of the desire for taxonomic certainty. Oh, I feel the same way. Um, and I, I think Maureen and I are probably wrestling with that a lot more <laughs> with the Shadow Clark project. And, you know, right now I'm writing an essay about a time travel book that I really enjoyed. But then again, it's a time travel book, but it's not really a time travel book. So, <laughs> Well, and it's interesting because I have just started reading rhetorics of fantasy. And so I am kind of conscious of and thinking about the ways that the form of the story and, and the story that is told and, and the ways that those intersect. And one of the things that I think is, is so brilliant about Unbearable Splendor is that the whole and the pieces do not fit together smoothly or easily or in easily describable ways. And I think that that's an invitation to say, what is this and how does all of this fit together and how do all of the different things that we can recognize in it fit together? And, and that's kind of the point because it is, it is sort of the story of transnational adoption and mm -hmm. figuring out how do all of these things fit together? Um, I, like, I, I feel like the, the form and the pieces are deliberately asking, what is this? Uh, and, and that that's kind of like that theme and form and all of those are, are, are married very well, even if it's hard, hard for me to talk about them. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I think the underlying theme for this novel, and of course I'm like Maureen, any, if I read it again, I'm going to pick out something different, but it seems like she focuses or she keeps touching upon uh, Freud's idea of the unheimlich, the uncanny and so immediately when I finished the book, I went straight to his essay on the unheimlich. And it does keep touching back to her story of living out, living in a new culture and growing up in a different culture and feeling invisible and feeling not represented and all that uncertainty about who she is. And I feel like the whole thing about the cyborgs, about the labyrinth, everything touches back to her personal story. And it just seems like she just keeps every every chapter is a reinvention of what she started with. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think she's just brilliant. Well, I had to go back and remind myself of what the Uncanny Valley is, because I always sort of half um, forget it. And uh, when mm -hmm. I looked it up, it you know, talks about human replicas uh, that are not entirely human, that elicit feelings of uh, eeriness and revulsion, you know, sort of. Ergo, the idea of the immigrant experience is being, you end up being almost but not quite human. And I thought, oh, yeah, it's, it's really very hard for somebody like me who is, you know, white European woman, lots of privilege, have always lived in the same place, have always lived in a place where, you know, I don't have to learn another language I can communicate. And trying to imagine what it is like to be in a situation where your very existence you know, is constantly being questioned by other people you know, because of your appearance, your, your name, you know, a slew of other things I can't begin to imagine. And I was sort of, you know, imagining what a disjointed experience that must be and seeing it sort of, you know, it, it made me think again about the way in which this is rendered on the page, you know, the, the ways in which there are so many things actually sort of jostling for attention. And so many things that have to be held in one's mind in play in order to sort of get through the fiction. Uh, I just found it really 
Yeah, so I thought it was interesting, for example, that she sort of drew attention to to Blade Runner because you know there you have the sort of the idea of the of the cyborgs. It's a, you know seamlessly integrated, and but at the same time somehow regarded you know as other, and the, the poignancy of them just wanting the same things as everybody else, you know, because they believe themselves to be human and they want all the things that you know pertain to humanity, including the right to keep on living. I thought, yeah, it's when you start thinking about that, it's well, the unbearable of the title really does mm-hmm. come into play. Mm-hmm. Really, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm, as I said, the more I think about it, you know, the, the more this fiction you know, sort of sticks in the mind. Let's do the rabbits, <laughs> uh, which I which I introduced um, because I had not read it for years, but but this was a favorite of childhood that I'd been meaning to reread and. I got it from the library and sort of accidentally ended up sharing it with my daughter. So we've been reading a chapter a night, probably as Watership Down was kind of intended or at least envisioned. Apparently, Richard Adams began this by by telling stories to his kids while taking them to school in the car. And uh, it is the story of rabbits who can talk to each other. And a few of them leave their, their rabbit warren because a prophet has discovered or had a vision of danger and so they travel on adventures and eventually establish themselves in a new warren on watership down so the the first half of the story i would say is is getting to watership down and establishing themselves and the second half of the story is realizing that they are all buck rabbits and of course what they need is does and so there is an adventure to another warren to collect does as you do when when you're a bunch of buck rabbits there is, I guess, kind of a lot to say. I found myself much more affected by the end than I remembered. I, I was I was genuinely kind of touched and tearful at the very end. But two things that stuck out at me. Uh, one, the ways that we are shown different kinds of living. I've been thinking a little bit, and partly in the context of the Underground Railroad, about science fiction extrapolating different and and the tradition within science fiction of extrapolating different ways of living and living on different planets and things. And there is the idyllic watership down there. There are the hutch rabbits who are cared for by humans and have basically lost their ability to, to be wild animals. There is the Warren that has made a deal with the devil and uh, goes and gets food provided by a farm. And there is Ephrafa, the very militant, controlled Warren, where the obsession is making sure that no humans discover it. And so all of the rabbits are very severe. I mean, it's a police state. And the other thing that I noticed this time was, especially in the in the first half of the book, how many of the chapters have this almost cinematic kind of broad, sweeping, let's tell you about all the birds calling and the different kinds of plants and then getting narrow and narrower to focus on a conversation or a little bit of travel between the rabbits. Um, but I just found that sort of the big description followed by little minglings of little rabbits moving around, a kind of interesting pattern that kept recurring in, in the early chapters. So I will toss it over to you you two. What did you think of, of Watership Down? I read this when it first came out, so I was about 14 or 15, and I immediately really loved Watership Down, and I read it you know, fairly often. I still think, actually, to my mind, it's the best of the modern sort of subgenre of, I'm waving my hands around here, animal fantasy, inverted commas. Mm-hmm. 
it kicked off a, a new interest in the idea of writing about animals as characters rather than as you know sort of just creatures. I'm not sure that anything has ever done it quite as well since. I could say things about Duncton Wood and moles, but uh, I know a lot of people who listen who might be listening to this like Duncton Wood, but that kind of really didn't do it for me. But there was something really quite fascinating um, about Watership Down at the time. Coming back to it after 40-odd years, I still find it very fascinating. Um, I found uh, the story, the story is, is, is really quite delightful. You know, sort of the idea of um, you know, once they've sort of actually escaped from the horror of being gassed out of the, the, the original Warren. You know, sort of setting off bravely. You know, it's 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 a very you know, the, the sort of your classic fantastic journey. You know, to sort of find a, a place of safety. And as you noted, uh, Jonah, sort of the cinematic quality of it, the sort of you know the descriptions of the um, you know, the sort of the wildlife, the countryside, and then as you said, focusing down on being a rabbit surviving out there and the things that rabbits do, some fictional and some actual. I found still very compelling. I mean, possibly because. Adams used a very good source in in in, in Loxley's uh, work on rabbits. Yeah, so he'd got a good solid basis. But what I began to notice, I, I think in places it's it's maybe dated a little. Yeah, you know, I, I can't imagine somebody setting out to write Watership Down now would sort of start with a situation in which all the buck rabbits have sort of escaped. And um, I mean, I, I know there were reasons why a lot of the female rabbits got left behind in, in the original Warren, but it was the way they didn't really seem to talk about the the does as um you know sort of actual individual entities like it comes in a little bit later but there was even given the fact that yes all right you know the job of the does is to breathe there was something slightly um i don't know i, I think my somebody setting out to do that now would possibly do it a, a little differently and sort of you know i'd feel a little less queasy about some of it but it was still fascinating because as you say this sort of the idea of um a kind of survey of different ways of living because I mean I bang on forever about Day of the Triffids but one of the things that interests me about that is Mason's journey across southern England seeing the different ways in which communities have set up after you know the uh, the Triffids have uh, attempted to take over and the ways in which they try to use community structures to survive and I can see as you say, exactly the same thing happening here, and yet it, it feels completely different. Uh, possibly because it's not—they're not living in a, you know, sort of post-apocalyptic uh, situation in which everybody's been affected. You know, this is just one sort of tiny little group, sort of working its way around different communities, trying to figure out what to do and, and what will work best for for it. And the other thing I've actually noticed more this time than I did the first few times I read it was the fascination with story and yes. the way in which the community is shaped by story, which I'm guessing we're going to talk about a bit more. Is it my turn? <laughs> yeah, I, I agree about that being probably the most interesting part about this novel is the sort of rabbit mythical part, all the little rabbit myths that they tell, the little proverbs and stories that they use to evoke their own belief system and moral system. You know, I, I think if I had read it when I was younger, I would have enjoyed it a lot more. <laughs> I'd never, it never actually reached my awareness until probably when I was a teenager. And I feel like I came across it from, you know, I was always looking for fiction that was political. And I think I must have come across this on some sort of like political list of some sort. 
I started it and abandoned it twice um, because <laughs> I was like too cool to read about books about rabbits. Once in once in high school and once in college, I'm pretty sure. So this is the first time I actually finished it. I did it. <laughs> I listened to it as an audio book just to get through it. And it took some breaks because it's about rabbits. But <laughs> I, I find it interesting. I keep thinking back, like, I'm pretty sure I discovered it from that political list of whatever kind. But uh, it's actually, I, I don't know, I, I was surprised at how quickly after the rabbits took off, they fell back into their, you know, natural, saying that with quotes, hierarchy. Everybody had their little roles. Yes. And um, I nobody really broke away from those roles. I thought that was interesting. I also found it interesting that there was this messiah rabbit that kind of foresees things. And for a while there, I kept trying to explain it away because, you know, I am really put off by the character who can foresee, you know, the ominous things coming and warn people and um, almost like that, the chosen one type character. I always sort of roll my eyes at that, but I thought, well, maybe this way it's, it's just as it's showing these rabbits as achieving some sort of level of critical thinking. This, maybe this is Richard Adams way of showing off critical thinking for these rabbits. And this one rabbit is able to, he can tell the hutch rabbits are not in a safe situation. He just can't understand why he can tell, but he knows. But no, I think it did come down to magic in some places. Mm-hmm. I'm also shocked. I, I still could never get over how, and I cannot remember his name, but the big tough guy rabbit, the one who was always the guard for everybody. What was his name? Big Wig. Big Wig. Big Wig. How is he still alive? Because <laughs> he ended up in that trap toward the beginning. And still, anytime he talked, I just didn't see how he could still be alive after that incident. I just, it was such a gory dark incident. I was wondering how, I, I assumed, Jonah, that you had been reading this to your daughters, and I wondered how they took that, because it just seemed like such a morbid scene. You know, it, it's it's interesting. I, I've been reading it with, with my six-year-old, and she, I don't think she really... Yes, in that scene, she was very worried, and I had to reassure her that Big Wig would be okay. Uh, the scene that brought her, because we've been reading it shortly before bed, and the scene that brought her out of her room and saying, Daddy, I can't go to sleep, is is the first mention of the Black Rabbit of Inlay, which is when oh. Holly and Bluebell from from the old Warren come, and they're they're calling out for Bigwig, and Bigwig is, and, and Hazel are, are hunched in, in some bushes, and... Bigwig thinks that Holly is the Black Rabbit of Inlay, who's sort of the the demon figure of of rabbit mythology. And if he calls you, you have to go. And then, of course, they discover that it's Holly, and and things end not necessarily on a happy note, but at least the magic has been dispelled. Um, but yes, we read that chapter, and then I I tucked her into bed, and about fifteen minutes later, she couldn't sleep because she was thinking about the black rabbit and um so we had to we had to do some calming exercises there and yes megan it sounds like i i picked a book almost designed to make sure that you wouldn't enjoy it and i apologize for that <laughs> i i did enjoy it it was cute it was cute i you know there was a part of me at the be- when i first started it this time i thought well if i had kids this would be a nice book this i would like to enjoy this book with with kids however you know and i think maureen sort of hinted at this it does become 
I'm, the there are no women in this story yeah. at all. Um, they are mothers, mm-hmm. and it they slam you over the head about mother, 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 and and I kept thinking, and and this is of course simplifying things to its its bare minimum, and and it's not respectful, but I kept thinking if this were a book about humans, this would be a frat boy story because it's just about a bunch of guys who are trying to get laid. <laughs> it, I mean, it it struck me that it. The first half of it is kind of a sort of, it felt to me as though, and I think, I think I read uh, an interview with Adams where he said that Bigwig and many of the others were based on, um, like some of his old soldier, his old soldier buddies. Right. And it was in some Mm -hmm. ways kind of, uh, old soldier buddies traveling at first. And then it, it almost like I, the more I read it, the less I like the second half and, and Mm -hmm. the, we have to go get, mothers and we have to get them out of this police state it it really feels like he'd kind of gotten himself to the downs and wasn't ready to be done i think i'm sure his kids weren't ready for him to be done right. and kept asking for more yeah yeah actually what fascinates me is this is if i understand correctly you know he had two daughters so he's actually uh-huh. telling this story to two little girls or you know sort of i don't know how old they were but i'm i'm just curious as to how they obviously enjoyed what he was telling them, but are they were they enjoying this because it was their dad telling them a story? I mean, yeah. I told Lord of the Rings to my two little daughters, and that is also not exactly a story with a whole lot of women in it. So uh... no, <laughs> but does it tell them? But it does. The message isn't that you're a girl and you have to grow up and have babies, and that's your job. That's true. Because that's what this story felt like to me, and mm-hmm. it's almost like the same problem I have with those last man on earth stories. It's all about, I, I got to find a woman so we can propagate the species. Mm-hmm. And it gets, it's a lot of pressure on a little girl. Mm. Oh, it's actually a whole sort of, again, a sort of whole areas of um, science fiction. Um, I, I pretty much abandoned when I was in uh, you know, late adolescence because uh, at that point I already knew that I did not want to have children. And I was really horrified that there was a whole sort of you know tranche of literature that told me that you know come the apocalypse uh, once the apocalypse was over my duty would be to bear children to sort of build a new world and I was thinking nope that's not what I'm going to do and right. uh, you know I, I decided I just had to stop writing uh, reading about that kind of thing because it was just so off-putting and you know sort of demoralizing and everything I didn't want from the future the thing actually that I wanted to I'd meant to raise earlier and I shall raise now is that I'm interested in it's a theme I think running through this so it's sort of an, an unintentional an unconscious theme there's quite a lot of um, ideas about different kinds of storytelling in all three of these fictions and the thing that strikes me in this is that it seems to me at times that um, Adams is struggling slightly to get to, or to, to maintain a particular tone yeah, because there are moments when you can hear these, you know, he's talking to children and telling them a story. And he's sort of you know, bringing in things like um, there's a distinct sort of flavor of Rudyard Kipling about this mm-hmm. and a distinct flavor of, um, you know, Kenneth Graham and Wind in the Willows. Mm-hmm. And then there are other moments where you sort of feel that he's becoming a little more um, distant and a, a little more, I don't know, Victorian somehow in the way he doesn't quite lecture, but you know, he, he instructs you upon the habits of rabbits. And then there are other moments, I think he said somewhere that he sort of was drawing on things like Br'er Rabbit 
um, for inspiration, at which point I thought, oh, oh, yeah. But then again, when he was writing this, you didn't really think about cultural appropriation. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I have to let that one slide. But I, I was quite fascinated by the ways in which he was attempting to tell stories and how this surfaced, particularly when he was um, you know, constructing the, 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 the rabbit, um, you know, its, its mythology and the way those different things came into play. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I I love the storytelling aspects of it, and and the notion that the storyteller in the group of rabbits is very important. I like that when mm-hmm. Bigwig is introducing himself in Afrafa, one of the three characteristics that he spouts off is I can ruin a story telling it. Um, and I just I suspect Megan that that an important piece of Watership Down may be encountering it at the right age and then having the right nostalgia tinted glasses afterwards. <laughs> Um, but in you're not per- the first person to tell me that. <laughs> in particular, my nostalgia is, I think, for the storytelling within the story or within the mm-hmm. uh, the and and the various little excerpts. I I I I had remembered the Black Rabbit of Inlay and El Prera challenging him being this kind of much more significant running theme, and it it it's just one of the stories. It's clearly it's just it's one that stuck with me on one of my readings and Bob Stones. Uh, my my six year old asked me how to play Bob Stones, and I had to say <laughs> I don't I don't really know. It's never it's never quite spelled out. You're gonna have to make it up. Yeah. I was gonna say I just I think that's really interesting because I've been trying to find a way to thread all of these three novels together, and I think you both hit upon that that all three stories are about stories within stories. I and um how important storytelling is in conveying whatever you're trying to tell, whether it's through an allegory about rabbits or, you know, a stylized allegorical multicultural type story like the stone boatman, which I keep thinking of as multicultural. I was always shocked every time they would describe someone with blonde or red hair. Cause to me, it felt like she was drawing from so many different styles of culture. I forgot to bring that up earlier. But that does seem to be what we've done here. We all inadvertently selected books that do have stories embedded within the stories and make storytelling such an important part of what they're trying to convey. I wonder, though, if that is given the three people we are, <laughs> that, that is actually a coincidence. That's true. <laughs> I, 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 it seems to me that we're, we're all three of us very much driven by the sort of fascination with not just the content, but the ways in which stories are constructed and the ways in which they are used. Um, So I was kind of expecting to find some sort of theme, but um, I was wondering whether it was going to be a kind of sort of really contrived pulling out of a theme, whereas the moment I started looking at them all, I thought, oh, yeah, you know, we're all about forms of storytelling here. So um, I'm kind of less surprised than I might have been. But at the same time, you know, actually, I find it all the more enriching once I started noticing that going on, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and challenging in a very good way. Well, it was interesting because I I uh, mentioned I was doing a podcast on Borges, uh, I guessed it, and I, I mentioned that we were reading these three books and someone said, well, you'll have to connect those back to Borges. And mm-hmm. all of them very easily and immediately did. Um you know, I mean, it just in the ways that they are experimental and interested in form and interested in different ways of 
telling stories and getting at stories and pulling on different traditions. And it was, I said, yeah, I mean, they, 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 there are, with Watership Down being being maybe a little bit more traditional than the others, but even there, lots of stories within stories and, and buildings of imagined mythologies and things. Um, thematic connections were not were not hard to find. I think actually, in some respects, Watership Down is, in that respect, Watership Down is almost the most interesting of the three in that I might expect the stone boatman and unbearable splendor to you know, sort of work beyond traditional sort of structures. But somebody like Adams, who's a, a much more um, conservative figure, perhaps, nonetheless, you know, he's actually got all that going on in the background as well, you know, perhaps unconsciously. But it, it is all sort of working through there as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I think on that note, having having unified these apparently disunified books, uh, and since I have a six-year-old in the room informing me that I, I should be done with this conversation, <laughs> thank you very much. I really enjoyed this, and I think we will have to uh, reconstitute the Cabbages and Kings book club podcast on a, on a somewhat regular basis yeah. if you two are, are up for it again. Oh, sure. absolutely. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. The show is on Twitter at KingCabbageCast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, and what I can do to make the show better. The website also has a link to the RSS feed for the show, which you can also find on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading. Hi, kiddo. What are you up to? Would you like to say a quick hi to Megan and Maureen? You can't actually see them, but you can say hi and then hear them. Hi. Hi. They said hi back. Did you know that the last this one looks a little bit like a Sarah. Mm-hmm. Just with the, with just all you have to do is change him. Mm-hmm. That's right. To blonde, to blonde I love these little snapshots of Jonah's home life. Mm-hmm. I'm back. <laughs>